Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, and then a couple of verses 34 and 35. But first, John chapter 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Verse 34. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Well, it's quiz time once again, lest we forget four graces of the Christian life that stand out on the pages of Scripture because of their importance. So I'm going to give you the main activity and you give me the specific grace by name. So, number one, the great emptier. Two, the great receiver. Three, the great giver. And four, the great motivator. Hope. Lord willing, next week we'll move on to hope, but for today uh, we're going to try to finish up. Uh, our study on love, the great giver. Last week we saw that the Lord Jesus was willing to pinpoint one specific characteristic, one distinguishing mark that will cause all men to know that you are his disciple. Love. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And this really shouldn't surprise us, should it? When we consider that the whole Christian religion is preeminently about love. Let me just give you a few reasons why I say that. First of all, the God of Christianity is love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit living in this eternal Trinitarian fellowship of love. God is love. Before he showed love to us. He is first love. And that's why he loves. 
It's what he is. It's his nature. Secondly, all the laws in Christianity are about love. Either loving God or loving man. There is no law in Christianity that does not have to do with love. Three, the greatest love gift ever was the father giving his one and only son. Giving him up for us as a sacrifice on the cross to save us from eternal torments. The greatest gift was his love gift. Number four, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Consider the Christ of Christianity. The cross, the the central point, the, the, the high point of redemption where Christ died to save us from our sins. It is the greatest demonstration ever of love. Think of Christ's new command that he left to us to love one another as he loved us. Think of the one debt we never get out of, the continuing debt to love one another. The end goal of Christ's mission, which was to bring us into that Trinitarian fellowship of love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever and ever in a New world of perfect love. And so now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So of course, the distinguishing mark of Christ's disciples is love for one another. And not just any kind of love, not mere natural love that's capable of any person, but rather the same kind of supernatural love that Jesus has for us that is only produced by the Spirit of Jesus in us. Undeserving love, self-sacrificing love, and unending love. That's a a love so radically different from from, uh, mere natural love that wherever and whenever you find it, you know for sure you have found a disciple of Jesus. That by way of review. Now for today, we're going to seek to answer this question. If love is so central to the Christian life and to the Christian religion, as we've seen it to be, then why don't we love more like Jesus has loved us? Why not more of this love in my life, in your life, in our life, that more and more men everywhere might see that we are his disciples? Well... The answer is because this kind of love has enemies. This kind of love has enemies. And I'm only going to speak of one this morning because I believe all the other enemies feed upon this one. And I'm referring to pride. Pride, the greatest enemy of love. The cancer that kills true love. The atmosphere that is toxic to love. The acidic soil that makes the flower of love impossible to grow. Pride. Love's greatest enemy. Now, I suppose we could come up with all sorts of different definitions for pride. But let's just keep it simple. Kids, if you want to know what pride looks like, just think of the middle letter in the word. What is at the heart of P-R-I-D-E? Well, it's I, isn't it? And by the way, that's also at the heart of sin. Because the first sin ever in God's universe was pride. When Satan, God's angelic being that he made perfectly wasn't satisfied with his position but thought he deserved better and wanted to be like God. And then he brought that pride, that sin of pride, I, 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 down into this world and tempted Eve. And God heard to start to think that she too knew better than God and his commands and she could choose for herself. She put herself above God. And then Adam, our representative, he too, fell to the sin of pride. And 
his fallen nature is passed down to us. And that explains why every single one of us have all gone astray, why we've turned to our own way with our backs to God's way. I did it my way. That's written upon the human nature of the youngest child here to the oldest of us here. Pride. It's all about I. How great I am. How important I am. How good I am. How worthy I am. And it can even hide behind how victimized I am. How unappreciated and misunderstood I am. How underpaid I am. But someone says, well, isn't selfishness the great enemy of love? Well, of course. But what is self but just another name for I? I. Pride is to be full of self, self-importance, self-worship, self-reliance, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. Pride makes self the sun and center of my solar system. And demands that everyone and everything revolve around me, around myself. And if you don't bow to myself, then we're going to have conflict. Pride is the great enemy of love. And it's found in every one of us without exception. Even the world of country music can identify this problem of pride Toby Keith's old hit makes light of it, but behind it is the obvious reality. I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. But you, you want to talk about you, you, you. And therein is our problem, you see. My pride colliding with your pride. The concern of pride is all turned inward. But what have we learned about real love? It's turned outward. It gives, it diffuses, it shares. The very opposite. They're two diametrically opposed things, pride and love. So if pride is the great enemy of love, what is the solution for our pride? Well, let's see if we can get some help. What's the great emptier of pride, me, my, mine? Well, that would be humility, wouldn't it? Humility is the soil in which all the other graces of the Christian life grow. And that truth is seen nowhere more clearly than in the the grace of love. For did not Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, Love is not proud. And in case you missed it, he he then says, is not self-seeking. It's not I, me, my seeking. No. True love can never flower in the toxic heart soil of pride. Christ-like love only happens where Christ-like humility is replacing me-like pride. And that's a lifelong battle. In fact, if you're not consciously fighting it, you're probably losing that battle. You're probably giving into it. It's just that ever-present in our flesh. Pride is either being denied or affirmed. It's either being killed or cuddled. So, pride the great enemy. Humility the great redeemer of love. Let's observe these dynamics then in John chapter 13 and in the lives of the disciples. You see, I think we'll see it more clearly in them because pride's very nature is to blind us so that we don't see it in us. But maybe and see it in them, we'll, we'll recognize it in us. So here we are in the upper room on Jesus' last night with his disciples They've come here to eat the Passover feast together. Think about that. 1,500 years earlier, God had set his people free from Egypt's bondage. 
when he brought the angel of destruction, God's wrath, upon every Israelite or every Egyptian home. But that angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites who had slain the Passover lamb and had applied its blood on the doorpost. And as God came through at midnight with his sword of vengeance and was killing the firstborn in every house, wherever he saw the blood, he passed over. And that's what they're celebrating. Jesus, the Passover lamb, whose blood alone causes God's wrath to pass over any who have by faith applied it to their hearts. And he's here with his disciples. And it's his last time uh, to eat this Passover meal with them. And here they are gathered together for this feast. Earlier in the day, Jesus had sent two of the disciples ahead into Jerusalem saying, you're going to meet a man carrying a jar of water on his head. Follow him and the owner and and, uh, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Well, the two went and found everything just as Jesus said it would be. And they prepared the Passover. Do you know you're going to find in life, in death and in the life after death, everything happening Just as Jesus said it would be. That's what they found. And so they made preparations for the Passover. And now it's evening and Jesus and the twelve arrive. And as they enter the room, uh, there at the door is a pitcher of water, a basin, and a towel. Everything one would need to wash feet. But what was missing in the room was a servant slave. The lowest slave on the totem pole who got the dirtiest, less liked job of washing the sweaty feet of the guests as they arrived. But a slave was not all that was missing that evening. Love was suspiciously absent, too. Love that finds joy in serving another Even its sacrifice to oneself. It was nowhere to be seen in the twelve. And you know now why love was missing. Because humility was missing. And love only grows in the soil of humility. But instead of humility, pride was filling their hearts. Self-importance that deserved to have others wash their feet. They were too full of themselves too proud to get down and, and serve one another in this lowly servant job. Uh, it's, it's not said what happened in, in their minds. If they even thought about it, well, I should probably get down and do it. They all had reasons not to do so. Good reasons to them. But obviously excuses to God. But perhaps the truth of the matter lies more in this area that nobody even gave it a serious thought. That that was viewed as so far beneath their dignity that it might have been immediately dismissed and completely outside the box of their thinking altogether. But one thing is for sure. The dirty feet under the table was the silent evidence that evening that pride was present and humility was absent. So don't expect to find love expressed here. Now, You can be sure this wasn't the first time that Jesus had seen their lack of humility. Remember, he camped for three years with these men. And Mark chapter 9 tells us that they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? That's the way to shut up a crowd. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. I mean, my sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. 
Now, that's not the way the world operates. It's exactly countercultural to the world. It's not natural. It's altogether supernatural. And so with Jesus' words, their pride was fixed. Or was it? Not so fast. One chapter later, John, Mark chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him with a favor to ask. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Well, they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. I mean, my. Jesus answered, you, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink this cup? Suffering? Well, we can, we can. Well, you will drink it, but these seats are not mine to give. But they belong to my Father who's prepared them for those he chooses. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Hot under the collar, we would say. Now, isn't pride the root cause both of our unloving giving of offense and of our unloving taking of offense. Isn't pride the same root? Think of James and John giving offense by their proud behavior. Well, we should have the highest seats in the eternal kingdom of heaven. We deserve those seats. And then secretly trying to reserve them without the other ten knowing about it. So by the time they think about it, they will already have them reserved. Well, we see that pride is not yet fixed in these two men, at least. It's oozing out of them. But it's just as prevalent in the ten who unlovingly take offense at James and John and become indignant at them. Who do they think they are? We are just as deserving as them. How can they put themselves above us? Pride giving offense, pride taking offense when it's to a man's honor to overlook a fault, to cover over a multitude of offenses in love, but never on pride's watch, never on pride's watch. And again, Jesus saw this. He had to live with this ugly mess of their pride, and he took the opportunity yet again to teach them what true greatness in his kingdom is men whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant he must it's an absolute necessity there is no greatness apart from servanthood and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all they must that's what true greatness is for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Learn it, men. Real greatness is being slave to all the rest. Real greatness is serving with deep humility, not in self-promotion, but in self-sacrificing love. That's glory, men. That's honor. That's greatness. And that even goes for me, the son of man. Now, not to get for myself, but to give myself my very life for many. Oh, surely now the second time around the 12 will get it, right? Not exactly. You, you, you know, don't you, that a whole lot more happened in the lives of Jesus and the twelve over three years than what we have in our four gospel accounts. John tells us at the end of his that I suppose Jesus did many more things than are written here. I suppose if they were all written down, the world wouldn't be big enough to hold all the books. So if we've seen two times now that Jesus had to call them aside, teach them, you can be sure that it was probably two times dozens of times that Jesus actually had to do this. Uh, but Luke records something in his gospel almost unbelievable that happened on this very night in the upper room with Jesus. 
In chapter 22 and verse 24, Luke says, Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatness. The greatest. No, tell me it isn't so. Not on this night. When Jesus is just hours from becoming a curse for them on the hellish cross, when he is preparing to stoop to the lowest and they're disputing about who is the greatest? Now, we're not sure when exactly this came up that night. Maybe it was when they first arrived at the the house and everyone scrambled for the best seats of honor. Maybe that's when the dispute arose. I'm greater. I should be where you're sitting, John. Or maybe it was after Jesus says, one of you will betray me. You know, it's, it's easy to go from who's the worst guy among us who could do such a dastardly deed to who's the greatest among us. I'd never do that. Who's the scumbag that would betray Jesus? We go from the worst to the greatest, and and it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're not sure, but whenever it was that night, we realized that this was no new argument, was it? It's the same old one. It was never over. It was always simmering under the surface and would break out from time to time, so now they're just picking up where they've left off earlier. They're still full of themselves, all about self, me, my, I. Full of love-destroying pride. And that's why the feet were unwashed. Still ignorant of what true greatness is. And so lacking in the graces of humility and love. Now, humility and love were present that night in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the very disciples to whom Jesus is leaving that mission that we prayed about. To take this saving gospel to the ends of the earth. These are the guys jockeying for the best position. And and these are the guys, and perhaps that's why on this night he leaves them with this new commandment. You must love one another as I have loved you. That mission doesn't have a chance without them learning to love one another. And that love doesn't have a chance as long as their pride goes unmortified. So what does Jesus do with these proud, unloving men who are so slow to learn? Well, he sets his own humble, serving love before them in a way that they will never forget. And so we read, He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He then poured the water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Not a detail is missing from the eyewitness John that night. He wants us to see that what he saw was nothing less than humble love. And he wanted us to see that humble love of Jesus against the backdrop of their unloving pride. And so... Notice how he emphasizes this is love in action. John 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. What what we're going to see from John 13 on to to the end of Jesus' life here is, is love in action. You're now going to see the full extent of of his love. Don't miss his love, John's saying. And it started with the washing of their feet, which was a symbol pointing forward to a greater washing of their souls from sin by his own blood that would happen just some 18 hours later. And then we're told that Jesus did this with a full knowledge of his dignity and his greatness and his glory. I, I find myself coming to John 13, just kind of reading over these things and not thinking about them. And just getting to, well, what happened? Jesus got up and washed their feet. Oh, but there's there's a statement here we dare not rush over. 
John says Jesus knew, verses 3 and 4, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, had put all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, and so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Think of it. He who is eternal God, the Son, the divine heir of the whole universe, it's his, it's, it's in his hands, doesn't think it beneath his dignity to strip down to a loincloth like a humble slave and to wash feet. That's God on his knees there. You count it strange? So once did I. Before I knew my Savior. But according to Jesus, this humble, self-sacrificing love is not something inconsistent with his divine nature. It's not inconsistent with his dignity and his greatness and glory as God. But rather, it is the very expression of that glory and greatness that is his as God. We can come to a text like this. I say I can come to a text like this and and think it means although he was God, uh, he acted and humbled himself and served like a slave, doing good to others. But what if we're not meant to think of it as although he was God, he humbled himself and served others, but, but rather we are to read because he was God. He humbled himself and poured out in self-sacrificing love to benefit others. Not although he was God, but precisely because he was God. He knows he's God. He knows who he is. And because of it, he gives himself to this action that will most express who he is. That this is at the very nature of God, the very impulse of God is self-sacrificing love. So having washed all 24 feet, Judas is included. He then puts his clothes back on, returns to his place and says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then these words that he just kept speaking to them. I tell you the truth. Here it is again. The formula to, to, to identify something that is important, that they may have a hard time grasping. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You see, the twelve had probably thought themselves as to look on this lowly service as, as beneath them, beneath their dignity. After all, they're one of the twelve. Not everybody's wearing that badge. One of the twelve that Jesus chose to be foundation stones in his church, to live with him for three years, to learn from him, to be his appointed sent ones. And so they sat there demanding to be served, demanding their rights. But Jesus says, such humble, self-sacrificing love is not beneath my dignity as your Lord, your teacher, your God. So it can't be beneath yours either, for no servant is greater than his master. Even the Son of Man came to serve. So follow my example. Do as I have done, and you'll be blessed. Can you imagine what it would be like to be one of the twelve at that moment? Never did your pride seem so out of place than then, when Jesus was down on his knees washing your feet, dressed like a slave. Until perhaps the next day, when they saw him washing their sins away hanging, helpless, on a cross. Even the Son of Man 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Their slowness to learn humility only goes to show how tightly the sin of pride clings to us. It's like our very skin. You can't get out of your skin hardly, can you? And yet we must learn humility if we're ever to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And if the world is ever to see the mark of discipleship. And that love will mean humble, self-sacrificing service. A love that humbly forgives sin and confesses sin. A, A love that seeks mercy and gives mercy to one another. Years later, the church in Philippi would be struggling with a similar problem. Hmm, isn't that something? All 12 of the disciples had this problem. Now we're we're seeing really one of the better churches uh, as you compare them. It's Philippi, and and yet they've got this this problem too. Their unity being threatened and fractured even by proud self-centeredness, thinking of themselves and their own concerns and thoughts and Insisting on their own rights. So so what does Paul do? Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4. He exhorts them, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You see, selfish ambition and vain conceit considers yourself a notch above the other. The other person with whom you're contending. That's that's selfish pride. It's the killer of love. And instead, he says, humbly consider others better than yourselves. Notice humility starts in the mind. It's, It's how you think of each other. You've been thinking of yourself a notch above them. No, that's pride, selfish conceit. Instead, humbly consider them a notch or ten above you. And then he goes on and says, and then pursue their interest and not your own. Each of you should look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. A genuine interest in their welfare. Now that's humility. Humility that sprouts love. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not only thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I'm going to read that again because I had to read it ten times to get it. Humility is not only thinking less of yourself, putting yourself down a notch, but humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not even going there to think of self, you see. That's, that's what humility is. And because we're going there with a greater interest to do good to them. Their interests, their concerns. That's, that's where I'm at, you see. And, and so I'm not here. It's love's positive delight in the happiness of others. And that brings a wonderful self-forgetfulness. Why? Because I'm taken up and preoccupied with you. This is thinking outside the box of self. Um, You know, we were all born into this box of self. And from this box, we, we, we look at the world. And we look at people. And everything's about me, my, and I. And what will it do for me? What will they do for me? How will this make me look? Everything, everything is considered from this box of self. We were born there. Well, one hymn, hymn or songwriter put it this way. I'm mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I've never had a selfless thought since I was born. No, I, I, I evaluate everything from self's perspective. And yet love... Love demands that we we think outside the box of self. And we consider others' concerns. And and there's this wonderful self-forgetfulness while I'm thinking of you. Love gets me outside of that box to where I'm evaluating life and considering what's best for others and how I can serve and enrich and bless them. 
I've got to get out of my box to, to walk a mile in your shoes. I, I've got to only be in my box long enough to think if I was in their place, what would I want done? Okay, now I'm going to come out and treat you like I would want to be treated. The air is stifling in here. It's kind of like breathing in a mass for 12 hours, breathing your own cell, uh, carbon dioxide. And all oh, the air is so refreshing out here. It's almost like this is where we were meant to live. Not in here. You, you, see, you see, God made us like this. And, and, and sin put us in here. In the box of self. And the only thing that can get you out of the box of self. Is Jesus. His love. His Calvary love. Where he as the Passover lamb laid down his life in love for you. And. And accepting that love, trusting in that love, applying that love to your heart. And, and then, then you break free. Then your chains fell off and you, your heart was free and you rose, went forth and you followed him outside the box, serving others, loving God, loving your, your fellow man. And, and out here, you know what we find? We find that Jesus was right when he said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It really is. You know that. When you for the moment, for the evening, have forgotten uh, yourself and all your concerns and have stepped out and served someone, you come home saying, I need to do more of that. That's, that's invigorating. That's life like it was meant to be. That's life in the image of God. That's life imitating God and living a life of love. That's what the Spirit was given to us for, to produce that kind of life. I don't want to go back into that suffocating box again. And yet there's something that's pulling me every morning back in that box. It's called my flesh. And that's why I've got to be killing it and denying it and saying, no, no, I'm not going back there. I'm going to walk with Jesus. Let me put my neck in the yoke with Christ out here and walk another mile with him. This is the life worth living so what's strong enough to overcome my stubborn pride and self-centeredness? It's the almighty, supernatural, undeserved, self-sacrificing, unending love of Christ for us. Who finds his greatest joy in serving the interest of his father and the interest of us undeserving ones. And that's why Paul, when he's dealing with these Philippians who are all about themselves and starting to turn inward and... And threatening the unity in the church. You know what he does? He, he, he lifts up Jesus Christ. In the, the greatest words we have anywhere in scripture on the incarnation. How God, the eternal God man, became man for love. And he says, your attitude, Philippians, should be the same as that is Christ Jesus. You see, it starts with your mental attitude. Let, let his mind be in you. Think like he thinks. He doesn't consider himself. He considers us. He had us higher than himself. He didn't spare himself. He spared us instead of himself. Now, now let his mind be in you. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. He didn't demand his rights to, to, be, to come down here and be treated as God and honored and worshipped and no, he, he submitted himself to be spat upon and mocked and nailed to a cross and crucified by wicked man. Very nature God. And as God, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. What's Paul doing? He's, he's going back to John 13. And he sees his savior dressed like a slave in a loincloth. Serving undeserving disciples. He sees him on the cross, suffering servant of the Lord. They're serving the Father. They're serving our great need, our greatest need. And he became a servant, made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. There it is. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's death with the sting of, of sin in it. 
That's death with the Father's wrath in it. That's death without the Father's comfort. That's death with none to help. And he did that. He humbled himself. So great his love. We sang that. And he did it all as God. In very nature God. Not although he was God he did it. He did it because he was God. What if that is the most matchless godlike and divine thing for God to do? To stoop and to love undeserving us. Then what a God he is. Have I known him? Have I understood what it means when it says God is love? That that is his impulse to do that as God. Not although he's God, he did this, but because he's God. That's how God acts. And so the father did not chide him for acting in some ungodlike fashion, but rather exalted him to the highest place. That's glory. That's the glory of God, stooping and serving, humbly, selflessly. Do you remember King David when they finally brought the ark up in the correct way to Jerusalem? And David is so happy. The first time the guys were struck dead because they touched the ark, well, they were headed on a cart. Now they were doing it right as God had told them on the, the poles. And, and David is just singing and leaping and, and praising God. He, he, he's, he's disrobed. He's taken off his kingly robes and he's dressed like a commoner. With the commoners, praising God all the way as the, the ark is brought up. And there in the palace, his wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, looks out. And when David got home that day, she had a mouthful for him. Oh, how fine the king behaved himself today, disrobing. Like one of the vulgar, one of the, the, the commoners. Who, we wonder, did she even know the king of kings? And why David disrobed and saw himself as a commoner before the great king of kings? When God saw his son disrobe and veil his glory and come and serve like the most common slave. He did not despise him, but he exalted him. That's who God is. That's the very impulse of his heart. And he couldn't, Christ couldn't have done anything to make his father more pleased with him. And say, have you read Luke 12, verse 37 lately? Jesus tells that parable about the master who gave his servants the assignments, and then he went away, and then he's coming back. Obviously referring to himself. And he says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. Formula, brace yourself. You might have a hard time believing this. He will dress himself to serve He will have them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. Not not Jesus in his uh, 33 years of, of humility here on this earth. But now Jesus, the God man, coming in his own glory and in the glory of his father and all the angels. And what will he do when he comes? He will see his people. And he'll come to us and he will say, sit down at the table and let me serve you. There is more God in that than in any other act. That was Calvary. God serving man. That's where we're headed. Into a, a relationship within the Trinity where each serves the other. And we'll be caught up in that wonderful love. So, dear Christian, will you imitate him? Will you embrace his definition of greatness? 
Will you live this life of love? Will you pray this week for more of this supernatural Christ-like love that is humble and outward focused and is serving? And then hear me, because if you stop there, you're a hyper-Calvinist. Will you set aside disciplined time this week to plan how you will step outside of your box and take up the concerns and cause of another, even at cost to yourself, and then make whatever arrangements need to be made in order to love in more than word, but in deed. And don't think that planning love makes it any less genuine. That's the devil's trick. If you've got to sit around and plan to love, well, you obviously don't love. It's got to be this spontaneous thing that just bursts on the scene. Can I just remind you that the greatest act of love was planned before the creation of the world and then brought forth with the fullest heart of love by the Lord Jesus. Believer, you can follow this good shepherd anywhere. Because he's loved you like that. And because that's his nature. That's what it means that he is loved. To to help the unlovely. May the Lord make his love to increase and abound among us. That all men may see that we are his disciples. And they might come to know this same amazing Christ-like supernatural love themselves. So pride is the great enemy of love. Humility. Humble, self-sacrificing, Calvary love is the remedy. I invite you, if you're lost, to get out of that box of self by coming to this Savior. You know the worst thing about living in that box? You not only put yourself above other people, but you put yourself above God. You're going my way, you see, and my way is not God's way. And yet, this God is so kind that he sent his son to die for sinners. And he says, sinner friend, come to Jesus. Let him, let him set you free from that life of living for yourself. It's stifling in there, isn't it? Oh, how, how, how stodgy the air gets inside. Come on out. Come on into our love. The love of the Father and the Son. Come into this love like it's going to be perfected forever and ever. It's yours if you will repent of going your way and come and receive him. Don't don't reject this love. It's being offered to you. And if you reject it, you will have only yourself to blame for all eternity. But if you accept it, you will glory in this perfect love and join your voice to the eternal choir that sings there's no love like God's love. If our love's to grow, we need to focus on this great love of Christ. So we're going to close with a song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. May God make it so for us. Stand and sing with me.